1: Hello, fellow POTS patients and lovely people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brooke, and today's episode of the POTS Practitioners might be one of our most important yet. Our guest today is a world-renowned clinician and researcher who is going to present her team's newly published hypothesis about the mechanism by which POTS may occasionally occur following HPV vaccination and we're going to talk more broadly about how a variety of things could possibly trigger POTS by the same mechanism. So this episode will be relevant to anybody interested in how POTS may get triggered. Our guest is Dr. Tanya Dempsey, who is an internationally renowned expert in chronic disease, especially ones that involve chronic immune dysregulation, such as autoimmunity, mast cell activation syndrome, Lyme disease, and all kinds of related conditions. Dr. Dempsey uses integrative medicine to get to her patients' root causes of their illnesses. Dr. Dempsey received her medical degree from Johns Hopkins. She completed her residency at NYU Medical Center and Bellevue Hospital. She then served as an attending physician at a large multi-specialty practice in White Plains, New York before opening her current practice, AIM Center for Personalized Medicine. At this clinic, she partners with the famous Dr. Larry Afrin, who you may recall we interviewed several weeks ago. Dr. Dempsey is also a staff member of Greenwich Hospital in Connecticut, and she has so many more other impressive medical credentials, but I would use up all of our time if I named them all. So Dr. Dempsey, thank you so much for making time to speak with us today.
0: Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So I have so many topics I'd love to discuss with you, but today we're going to focus on your new publication about POTS that just came out in the journal of Vaccines. And your article starts by reviewing the history of HPV vaccines being involved in a little bit of a mystery or a little bit of controversy where on the one hand, quite a few published case series or investigations have reported seeing some POTS and some related conditions coming on soon after HPV vaccination. But on the other hand, some pretty large high profile studies have looked into the safety of these vaccines and determined that they are generally safe and effective. So now you and your co-authors, all of whom are very top specialists in POTS and mast cell activation syndrome and related disorders, have proposed that both perspectives could be correct, that, that HPV vaccines are generally safe and effective, yet may still result in POTS for some unlucky few and you present a hypothesis that explains how this could be true, a kind of a missing link that might have been overlooked before. And one thing I love about your article is that along the way, it does just a beautiful job of explaining some things about POTS and Mast Cell Activation Syndrome that I think our audience will really benefit from understanding better, even if they don't currently have an MCAS diagnosis and even if their POTS did not come after HPV vaccination. But before we dive into everything, I just wanna make sure, have I described this accurately so far?
0: Yeah, you've
1: got it. Okay, so let's dive in. I'm excited to break down your article for our audience, but maybe we can just start with the super basics of what is HPV and what is the vaccine for it?
0: Yeah. You know, HPV is um, a human papillomavirus. It's very, very common viral infection. More than 42 million Americans are currently infected with one of the types of HPV. There are really more than um, 150 strains. And although they've narrowed it down to about 40 strains that probably cause cancer, and they've narrowed it down to two main strains that cause maybe 90% of cervical cancer. So what we know about this virus is that it's transmitted via skin-to-skin contact, via intercourse, oral sex, lots of ways. And unfortunately, if anyone gets infected with it, over time, the virus can cause changes in the cells and then eventually lead to cancer. We know there are certain cancers that are more likely to develop from HPV, and just to be clear, again, because there's so many strains of HPV, or so, some people would know it as genital warts, sometimes they, you could see the warts, sometimes you can't. It's the ones that you can't see that are usually problematic. And they can cause cervical cancer. That's, again, over 90% of cervical cancer cases are due to two particular strains of HPV, strains 16 and 18, if you're interested in that. And we know that probably 70% of oral oropharyngeal oral or throat cancers are due to HPV. And so this is an important uh, virus to understand. It's an important virus to get control over, right? So there's, there's the prevention side of things uh, that people are looking at, right? So it's safe sex. It's, there, you know, things that go along th- those lines. And then there's this vaccine that was... Designed to help prevent infection with one of the, and in fact, the we'll talk about the vaccine itself, but really one of nine of the main strains that can cause cancer. So it's an important virus. The vaccine. I'll just dive right in. In um, I believe it was in 2014, the new Gardasil HPV vaccine was, I guess, approved right by the FDA. And at that time, when it was approved, there was another Gardasil formulation that had four strains in it. And then in 2014, they developed this Gardasil with nine strains. That's the only one that's available here. You can only get Gardasil in the United States for HPV. The the vaccine has a number of excipients. Maybe some of your audience would know those are the ingredients that it's mixed with. In order for the HPV vaccine to work, it has to have What's called an adjuvant. An adjuvant is something that makes the immune system react even more to build a immune response. So in order to prevent someone becoming infected with HPV and then getting cancer, you have to have an immune response against the virus. And so the Gardasil vaccine was created to have an adjuvant made of aluminum to create the immune response. Now, in in Europe, I'll mention that there are several formulations of HPV vaccine. There is a Gardasil 9, I believe they have. There's another Gardasil formulation. And then there's something called Cervarix. And the Cervarix has a slightly different adjuvant. I think it is aluminum-based, but it's a different form of aluminum and has a sort of a different reaction and may also cause a a good, actually looks like it's a a good immune response, stronger antibody response. So that's basically the the gist of, you know, the vaccine, its importance and and, and about the virus itself. I hope that covers it.
1: Yeah, you've already taught me more about HPV than I ever knew before. (laughs) So
0: who gets
1: HPV vaccines? Is it males and females? And Mm -hmm. what age?
0: Yeah. So the recent guidelines, it's the uh, ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. They are recommending that all girls and boys get vaccinated at age 11 or 12, as early as nine, and that if it doesn't happen until ages 13 to 26, that they get a catch up vaccination. Now, the FDA has approved it for ages nine to 45. It's a big range. But again, you know, the recommendation is to get it at ages 11 or 12. And I think that the the thinking behind that is that in the studies, they showed that during that particular age range, the immune response, the antibody response was best so that kids who got it at that age may only need two doses of the vaccine versus three doses that you might need at other ages. So what they're saying is they've expanded the range. So they say ages 9 to 14, males and females receive two doses over a 6 to 12-month period. But then if you're older than that or you're a young adult, they are recommending three doses because it seems that the older you get, the less the immune response is adequate enough to to make antibodies.
1: Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I have to admit, when I had heard that they were recommending it as young as nine, I started worrying that kids in America were getting sexually active that young, but it's not that. It's the immune response is better when they're that young.
0: But I will say that, yes, that's all. There's another part of it. And that is that because of the concern that children are becoming sexually active, teens are becoming sexually active earlier If you talk to pediatricians, they'll say they want to give that as early as possible in case. It's like a just in case. So there's there's probably two parts to that. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Two reasons for that.
1: Okay. So your article starts by giving kind of a synopsis of some of what the medical literature has said about POTS vis-a-vis HPV vaccine in the past. What has that literature said?
0: You know that there's a subset of patients who will go on to develop POTS, CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome or other neurologic events. But, you know, there were two studies that actually looked at other studies and looked at the metho- methodology of the HPV vaccine clinical trials, and they really found incomplete reporting of some of the serious harms those studies looked at, you know, whether they were under-reporting side effects, adverse events. Okay, so there were a couple of those. Then there was a big study by the Nordic Cochrane Center, and even in their analysis, they, they found actually a pretty significant increase in uh, side effects, such as POTS. Well, first, they, they looked at myalgia, like achiness, fatigue, headaches. They did find a increased risk of POTS, increased risk of CRPS. And they wrote in their paper was that new onset POTS was judged as definitely associated and was increased by HPV vaccines. Now, there have been probably more than a dozen case reports and case series. I think in the literature, there's at least 150 cases that have been published on these various uh, side effects. So so we have some You know, data and support for the vaccine being problematic. Now, of course, the numbers are still small compared to the millions of people who have received this vaccine. And I want to be clear. They found a significant association between HPV and let's say POTS. But again, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's still small, relatively speaking. I think that's important to know, right? Because We don't wanna instill fear about the vaccine.
1: Right, right. And HPV leading to cervical cancer isn't exactly a risk-free proposition either, so. Correct, correct. Okay, so this is the really big question. What is your hypothesis that accounts for HPV vaccines occasionally, potentially causing POTS while also being generally safe and effective? And what were you and your co-authors observing in your patients?
0: So most of the case reports of adverse events, HPV vaccines, have really not been able to identify any specific factor other than the vaccination that led to the adverse event. And that sort of raised the question of, what is it about this vaccine? Is it the vaccine or is there more to the story leading to these these side effects? And so we sort of introduced this new hypothesis basically as a way to suggest a strategy for reducing adverse events because with a, a clear path, a clear understanding of why people might develop these side effects, we can maybe prevent them. And so really what our hypothesis is that really by looking at our case series, we believe that our patients developed, not only developed POTS after the Gardasil HPV, which again has been described in the literature, but also had histories of symptoms consistent with mast cell activation syndrome, which were present prior to the HPV vaccination. And after the fact, responded to treatment once they were diagnosed. So basically to narrow it down, the hypothesis is that that maybe the patients who are having the side effects are those that have underlying mast cell activation syndrome that is unknown to them. It's mild, it's maybe not, hasn't completely presented. You know, it's interesting when we take these histories, very often, they're these subtle findings or subtle facts that the patients tell us. Sort of like the red flags always go off in, in my, my head. That sounds like mast cell issue. You know, sometimes it's subtle, like they have some allergies. Sometimes they don't have that. Or they have inflammatory type symptoms, growing pains, joint pains. They have these things that have come up during childhood. Then they receive the Gardasil vaccine. So they already had probably dysfunctional mast cells. But they needed a trigger to prime those mast cells. And then that whole cascade of events leads to POTS and the other thing. So our hope is with, with this theory that if it's true, if, if we can find a way to prove it, of course, this isn't just, these are cases. We haven't proven anything. But if we could determine if this is true, then if we could identify the patients who have MCAS before going for the HPV vaccine, then we really could potentially make a, a huge difference, right, in outcome.
1: Yeah. So if I were to try to summarize just to make sure that I have it and our listeners have it, Yeah. and I suspect a lot of our listeners resonate with this that you're talking about, having symptoms before you had a diagnosis that, you know, looking back maybe means something to you, but at the time, you'd never thought to think about it. But so you, in your case series, talked about patients who, looking back, had inflammatory or allergic-type symptoms before they got the HPV vaccine, suggesting that maybe they had undiagnosed MCAS, and then something in the HPV vaccine maybe served as a trigger to kind of take it up a notch and make their MCAS worse. And I think you mentioned that they responded to MCAS treatment. Can you talk about that? Because I am guessing that some of your patients, it had been a long time since the original trigger, right?
0: Correct. Yeah, we're not gonna say we cured everyone. That would be unrealistic. I would say that that many of them had at least a partial response. So if it were the vaccine, so there there are some people in our medical community who believe that the vaccine is damaging something, right? And that that the damage may be, let's say, irreversible. We're we're saying, and we're not going to argue that point, that may be true to to some degree. I'm not, you know, that's not my area of, of specialty. But what we're saying is that there is something in the vaccine that is causing the mast cells to become activated inappropriately or more inappropriately, and that targeting the mast cells. So we're not targeting the vaccine. You know, we're not doing, we can't do anything. Sometimes you're right. We're seeing them 10 years, 20 years later, but managing the mast cell activity can be very helpful.
1: So your paper had this great explanation about MCAS saying that MCAS stems from a genetic predisposition, and then there can be a, and I'm going to quote it here, potential for many antigens to trigger a major and permanent escalation of baseline mast cell misbehavior. And I'm guessing a lot of our listeners can relate and may remember an event in their life where their health was never the same again afterwards. For me, I think it was wisdom tooth surgery. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about whatever is known about this phenomenon and maybe give examples of common triggers that you see for that big escalation of mast cell misbehavior.
0: So, you know, the, the issue really is not genetic in the traditional sense. We've not identified uh, the genes for MCAS what we believe, and again, some of what we're talking about is there's some research, preliminary research that has suggested what I'm saying. Uh, Some of the research is not in MCAS per se, but maybe in mastocytosis or in people studying cell lines. So to be clear, we don't have a gene for MCAS that we know of. There may be, there may be multiple, but the genetics really is rooted in epigenetics. So the way I think about epigenetics is that the epigenetics is Something outside of your genes, epigenetics could be a a chemical. It could be something called a methyl group that you would make from nutrients that you eat. It's your environment's interaction with your genetic makeup. And so, what we know is that epigenetics, things that are in your environment that then sort of bind to your genes and change. They don't change the gene; they change how the gene is expressed, gets gets passed down from generation to generation. So, in MCAS, we often see families with signs of MCAS. We might see a mother, father, grandparent, and so the the reason that may be is because there's something about that original. Let's say it was a grandparent. There was something about that grandparent. Let's say the grandparent, I'm making some of this up because th- there's no way to prove this, but let's say the grandparent was a smoker and that smoking became an epigenetic event. The chemical from the tobacco bound to a, to a gene are part of the genome, and it made the genome unstable to some extent. That got passed down to, from generation to generation. What we believe is that it's the fragility of the genome that leads to mutations over time. And these are the mutations that may be causing stem cells from, let's say, the bone marrow to give rise to mast cells that are mutated and dysfunctional. So it's a complex series of events that we believe is. responsible for the development of MCAS.
1: So that makes sense. And then I think there's a part two
0: to that. Yeah.
1: That I think you were about to explain. Yeah. The escalation.
0: The escalation. Right. So I want to make one more point that I think is really interesting first though. And because when we talk about families, one of the things that families often ask me is, you know, why symptoms are different? Like I can have two siblings, I can have twin siblings or parents or whatever, and they can have an MCAS, but the symptoms are different. Yeah, what's up with that? Right? And you think, how is that possible? Well, so the pattern of activation, the the mast cells mutations lead to a different array of mediator expression. And then the mediator expressions, the different mediators dictate the symptomatology to some extent and where the symptomatology comes out. So let's just say one family member, talk about the event, but let's say they've had escalation of MCAS and their symptoms are mostly, let's say, skin related, and they seem to have more of a histamine issue. And let's say the lab work confirms histamine, but another person in that family had a different trigger, a different event, different mutation, might have manifestations in their gut or or in their lungs. And maybe their main mediator is, uh, is leukotrienes. So again, there's no mutation causing MCAS. It's a, a weakening of the genome that then is allowing mutations to occur. And then that's being passed on. And then more mutations are accumulating over time, especially if the mutation happens in a stem cell that then is going to develop into a mast cell. So that, I hope, you know, helps to explain it. Now, the question is about the triggers. And, you know, I don't, again, I don't think we understand completely why one event in particular is going to be the trigger for a particular patient. But that trigger, which will set off the mast cells, may lead to further mutation, And and this is an area we're trying to study because we believe that the mutations in the level of the mast cell may, if we understood those, maybe understand treatment better. So the trigger probably sets the mast cells off into an area where they're mutated. Then they really are sort of on their own, doing their own thing. So for, I don't know your history, but like if you had the wisdom tooth surgery and, and then that caused the mast cells to become more aberrant. And that led to more mutations, and that led to more mass cell activation. And that, you know, it was sort of a vicious cycle. It may be hard to come back from that.
1: Right. Because that is sort of the main thing that you mentioned, where it sounds like sometimes you can encounter a trigger that makes them escalate that's hard to come back to baseline afterwards.
0: Exactly. It seems that, and this is the unfortunate thing. It does seem like over time in general, patients with MCAS do have an escalation of their symptoms. They can return to a baseline. They often don't return to baseline where they started, let's say when they were born. But like, you know, I see it as like a step, you know, they, they reach another step. Some trigger brought them to the step. So for some, that, that step is way up there. Sometimes it's a little step, And then the patient is in the midst of this flare, then they will plateau and that step just, you know, they just, they're flat. Then there's another trigger and then there's another step that they go up. And so it does seem over time that MCAS can escalate like that. It can do it in increments and there can be long periods of time when when the mast cells are stable, or it could escalate very quickly, very high and be very hard to stabilize. Yeah.
1: So that's the bummer of mast cell activation syndrome. And that's the reason I work so hard to escape wildfire smoke every summer, because that's a big one for me. And I've learned that it's it's not worth it because it's going to be so hard to get back to baseline after.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure there are lots of other people who suffer with that too. And that, the thing is that I think that you bring up a good point. One of the most important steps that we talk to patients about is avoiding the triggers. If you know the triggers, unfortunately, some people haven't figured out their triggers yet. But if you know your triggers, you avoid avoid it at all costs. And sometimes you you can't help it. But your question about what are the triggers? Well, that's the challenge because to the individual and their mast cells, the triggers may not be obvious. Sometimes it is, right? So if it's a, excipient in a vaccine, if it's an excipient in a medication, if it's a stressful event, emotional trauma, physical trauma, accidents. I mean, there's so many. The list is, just goes on and on what could really do it. So I think it's it's important for patients who are suffering with this to, to start to look at all the potential triggers and try to eliminate it. And trauma is a big one and trauma is a very hard thing to deal with, but it will continue to perpetuate the mast cells if, you know, if it's not dealt with on some level.
1: So your paper had a wonderful section tying the mast cell activation syndrome back to POTS. Mm -hmm. And we have talked about that before on this podcast. So our audience will have heard it before. But you and your authors are just so eloquent. As I was reading it, I was like, oh man, this is the best explanation I've ever seen of how POTS can arise from mast cell activation syndrome. Do you mind talking about that for a minute?
0: Yeah. I think there are a few ways actually to look at this. You know, We talked about three ways, basically, that we think that MCAS can lead to POTS. And this is a review maybe for for some of your listeners, but uh, mast cells are mostly found at the body's environmental interfaces, protecting us from the environment, but they really are in abundance in the walls of, of the vessels, of blood vessels and nerves. And if you imagine, if we talk about the blood vessels first, so it's a tremendous repertoire of mediators that mast cells can produce and release. The effects on the blood vessel could be pretty pronounced. It could have a, a vasoconstriction effect uh, or a vasodilatation effect. So constrict, dilate, and that could be driving the things that we see with hypertension for some POS patients, hyperadrenergic POTS, or hypotension, low blood pressure, sometimes alternating. And of course, that having an effect on heart rate, Etc. So, so the mast cells are in the area of the vasculature, and so we believe that the mediators that they're releasing are then basically telling the blood vessel to act in a certain way, and then is causing the the POTS symptoms. Okay, so that's one one way to look at it. Now, there's a form of POTS neurogenic POTS where it's really related to the nerves, right? So mast cells are are frequently found in, in this close approximation to nerve endings. And so if they release the mediators at that location, they can send a signal to the nerves, to the nerve endings, release their neurotransmitters, can impact the mast cells, the mast cells with their neurotransmitters, so to speak. Some of, the, some of what the, the mast cells make, the neurons can act on, and, uh, and then that sends uh, in an erroneous way, and then you wind up with dysfunction in the nervous system, right? So dysautonomia essentially. The autonomic nervous system becomes dysfunctional. So those are the ways I think about it mechanically speaking, right? So so the mast cells in the vessels, the mast cells in the nervous system, and how they're impacting the interaction between them. I think the other important point to make, and I don't think we understand this either yet, is that, you know, some POTS patients have autoantibodies. So there's an area of research about autoimmune POTS, And, you know, we know that mast cells are involved in potentially causing the development of autoantibodies. Mast cells interact with other cells in the body, namely the the B cells that make antibodies. And so there's also the possibility that the mast cells are somehow driving the development of autoantibodies, or at least helping that process along, and then, you know, thus you develop this autoimmune, basically the the immune system attacking the nerves, and the autonomic nervous system, and then POTS. So that's how we've sort of looked at it.
1: Yeah, so mast cells are just amazingly powerful. It's just Incredible. incredible to me. To me, your hypothesis feels very strong. Like, I almost want to smack my head and say, of course, if I feel like I have seen this in other treatments such as breast implants or Mm -hmm. other things. And it just, to me, seems super possible that this is happening. But it also makes me wonder, why wasn't this proposed or studied Mm -hmm. sooner? Because there's been some pretty big and well-funded institutions like the Nordic Cochrane Center that have Mm -hmm. looked into POTS after HPV vaccine. And so... Do they just not know about mast cell activation syndrome, do you think? Or are they? Thinking-
0: yeah, I, I think I think it comes down to you don't know what you don't know. And so I think they looked at the things they understood or thought they understood. MCAS is a relatively, you know, newly identified disease disorder, whether it was on the researcher's radar or not, hard to, hard to know. The other part of it is I, I think that while a lot of this research has looked at, let's say, POTS or other adverse events from from HPV vaccine, it seems to me that in reading the literature that there weren't a lot of people asking the question why. They were trying to look at the correlations, the causations, right? They look at all that. But the question was why, right? So if you don't really look at or think about the why, then you're going to get stuck. Because if you look at the why and you say, well, what is it about HPV vaccine that is leading down this path, right? You start to think about ingredients. And then when you start to think ingredients, at least in, in my world, we start thinking, well, we know how mast cells respond to excipients. And so to us, it's sort of also like, you know, we smack our head and go, of course, because it's how we think about things. But, you know, it's not clear to me that the research have been asking the question why.
1: Okay. Can I ask what kind of feedback you've received about your article and your hypothesis from other doctors and your patients?
0: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the the patients have been so appreciative. I'm so thankful and grateful to the patients of mine that contributed to the article. This is important work that they're part of. And and in general, I think that people are relieved to see that we're starting to think about these things in a way so many have responded on social media to me about finally. Yes, they all knew this. This is what was happening, but no one was talking to them about it. No one was validating them, right? And it's just, that's what we want to do. We want to—we want people to understand, like, we're hearing you. We know this is a problem, and, you know, let's figure out how we can, you know, we can get, you know, more research on this. So, no, the, the response has been great. I, I have to be honest, other than my community right now of doctors, the MCAS community, obviously, and any of the doctors who are treating POTS, EDS, you know, so supportive, right? Saying the same thing. Like, of course, it all makes sense. I haven't heard yet from the other part of the medical community yet. Been a little bit quiet, interestingly. And I don't know what to make of that yet. I really think that we need to get the word out. I'm good at putting the word out into my community, right? But but I'm sort of preaching to the choir. Now, how do I get this information into the OBGYN's office? into the pediatric offices? That's the question. But so far, the response has been great.
1: Great. Well, that's good to hear because that was my response as well. As I was reading this, I like, almost wanted to cry because I was so happy that yeah. this was you know, getting said. And of course, at Standing Up to POTS, we hear from patients who get gaslighted all the time. And I
0: know. Um,
1: so the validation, like you said was That's was huge. huge. And we're so appreciative that you and your co-authors listen to patients and believe patients. Thank and you. so we are excited to help spread the word about your paper. If your hypothesis gets some testing and some support, mm-hmm. you had mentioned that maybe it could be used to help prevent some future adverse events. Do you mind talking a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, listen, I think that There's several areas that have to be looked at. We really need to understand association versus causation. I think that we could look at whether pre-vaccination screening for MCAS could be an effective strategy for prevention. I think that we need to follow, we need to even look at other vaccines, right? And understand how this could potentially help with any other possible, you know, reaction. I think that we could potentially look at how mast cell targeted pre-treatment with, let's say, antihistamines, for instance, of of patients who might be at risk and how that might reduce the risk of post-vaccination adverse events. So I think this is exciting because vaccines are probably one of the most important inventions of modern medicine. And... You know, we have to remember what vaccines have allowed us to do and to to overcome. But obviously, there's a potential problem, right, particularly with this one. And so, again, we're not saying there are lots of people who are fine, right? We're saying, what can we do to get people vaccinated appropriately? And what can we do for prevention? And these all need to be looked at. Can we prevent these events if we know enough about this process beforehand and can treat it?
1: Yeah, that's exciting. And it makes me think that probably some of our listeners have children that they might Mm. suspect are at elevated risk of MCAS, either because of their genetics, or they're already maybe showing some of those early symptoms. And do you have any suggestions for them to help them maybe avoid that major and permanent escalation of mast cell misbehavior? Or is it so hard because I know that everybody's triggers are different and there's a million triggers out there. And if you are predisposed to this, do you think it's virtually inevitable that something is going to come along and trigger these people? Like, I guess you want to balance minimizing risk, but without living in a bubble. Like, have you thought about mm. how to manage that?
0: I think about this all the time. You know, I come from a preventive medicine background, really. I'm really all about what we can do for optimizing health, preventing, you know, bad things from happening, but we don't have all the answers. I'm not God, right? I can't, there's no way that we can know exactly how to prevent everything. You know, our environment is somewhat out of our control to some extent. So I'm sort of about, look, you have to live your life and there are some things in your environment that you can control. Think about the things that you can make some some decisions about that. Maybe you can't control things that you thought you could control either, right? We're not going to drive ourselves crazy because that added stress will drive your mast cells <laughs> nuts also. So the things that I think about for children and and listen for adults too, we need to decrease our toxic load. You know, I think that what we're going to find with with time is that mast cell activation syndrome is a disorder of modern. Day where we are bombarded with so many toxins in our environment, we're living in a world different than 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And I would venture to guess that that while there may have been MCAS back then, the numbers are probably greater. The more we are exposed to the world that we live in, so again, can't control everything, but I think that feeding our children the highest quality food, if possible, organic, so you minimize the pesticides, because we know that pesticides can have far-reaching effects on mast cells, on hormone dysregulation, um, lots of things, uh, limiting sugar, and really getting adequate protein and fat. The body, the cells have to function, the brain has to function. In my opinion, vitamin D is by far the most important vitamin to ever like think about, okay? <laughs> If you don't do anything else, you got to think about vitamin D. Mast cells have vitamin D receptors on their surface, so so vitamin D deficiency can cause an escalation in mast cell activation syndrome. I've seen it. I've seen vitamin D supplementation reverse mast cell activation syndrome, or at least control it. I'll tell you an interesting story. We had a, a child in the practice who. Young, though, know, like two, three, four. It was a child of another uh, patient that we were seeing. And hives, hives, rashes, hives, just they could not figure out. Every allergist saw the kid, nothing, you know, wasn't allergic to anything. It really sounded like MCAS, right? But it's hard to diagnose that young. It was getting weaker. There was all these other symptoms that were starting to come up, but the rashes were uh, incessant. So what happened was I said, finally, we have to check the vitamin D level. And check the vitamin D level, it's almost zero, which I've almost never seen. And it's so bad that the calcium levels are starting to come down. It takes a lot for calcium levels to start to go down, but because vitamin D helps the absorption of calcium. So almost no, no vitamin D, calcium's going down, it's really kind of getting dangerous. And we supplement with vitamin D and that's it. There's no rashes, all the symptoms go away. Now, the kid probably has underlying MCAS, there may be another trigger awaiting him, unfortunately, but it was so dramatic, the response. And so vitamin D, making sure they get enough vitamin D, it's not a not a guarantee they're not going to have an MCAS flare, trigger, or escalating event. That's
1: wonderful. I wish I could listen to you all day. You. <laughs> now, luckily, you do have some videos online and you have some resources and Facebook information. And you are such a wealth of knowledge. I just so appreciate everything you put towards this. Um, where can people find you online if they want to learn more?
0: Sure. Well, thank you so much, Jill. That's so sweet of you to say. So I have a website. It's uh, drtanya.dempsey.com. I have a, a practice website. My practice is AIM Center for Personalized Medicine. Our website is pm P as Peter, M as Mary.com. Center PM. Of course, my Facebook page, Dr. Tanya Dempsey. Instagram is Dr. Tanya Dempsey MD. I'm trying to write, put more information out there. I love doing these podcasts. I love just dumping my, my brain into, into this stuff because I have so much that I want to share with everyone and I don't want to keep it all in there. <laughs> so, oh,
1: amen. And we will put all of those links in the show notes so that listeners. If you wanna find Dr. Dempsey's paper that we've been discussing or any of these resources, they'll be in the show notes. And Dr. Dempsey, I just cannot thank you enough for doing this work and writing these kinds of papers. When you see that our community may have unique issues and that you are in a position to help prevent getting worse for some of us, I really hope that your paper gets circulated widely and that it educates the masses about MCAS and POTS. And just thank you for all the work you do to help everyone in the chronic illness community all the time through all of your outlets. We are really grateful to have a doctor of your caliber and compassion working on our behalf. And hey listeners, as always, this is not medical advice. Please consult your medical team about what's right for you. Please consider subscribing and feel free to send us feedback at standinguptopots.org podcast. But most of all, thank you for listening. Remember, you're not alone. And please join us again soon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts
0: or on our website, www.standinguptopots.org podcast. And I would add, if you have any ideas or topics you'd like to suggest, send them in. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots.